0: The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the American Health Law Association Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and this is the second in a series of podcasts about requesting and receiving direct fraud and abuse guidance from the agencies. Today, we're talking about self-disclosures to CMS, to OIG, and to DOJ, the benefits, the requirements, and the expectations. With us are Leah Olson, Compliance Officer with Ascension, and a healthcare lawyer with deep experience in assisting providers with investigations and self-disclosures. Also joining us is Scott Table, a partner in Hall Render's Milwaukee office, who advises providers on a variety of healthcare-related matters, including guiding them through the self-disclosure process. Leah, Scott, welcome. Leah, if we start with you, if you want to kind of share your background and experience and you know, maybe your experience with self-disclosures as well.
1: Sure. So I have been... Um... Uh, well, right now, I'm not a practicing lawyer. I'm a compliance officer um, for Ascension, uh, overseeing investigations and incidents, which it in that role and relevant here includes overseeing any self-disclosures that we would have um, as an organization. But uh, historically, I, I am a licensed attorney. Um, I worked at Hall Render for the first 11 years of my career until 2017. Um, And really focused my practice on compliance issues and in the healthcare space. Um, So that span from, you know, Medicare billing and payment, voluntary refunds, OIG, CMS self disclosures, any sort of government investigations, Um, and then uh, came in-house to Ascension in 2017 and kind of continued that sort of work um, on an internal basis for the organization. So have done a number of self-disclosures um, over time, you know, working through the, the investigation piece, the, the actual preparation of the disclosure, determining a strategy, um, you know, as, as Scott will attest to as well. Um, you know, depending on the type of issue, you might have multiple different avenues to consider of which way you want to go um, and how you want to address it. So working through that strategy and then working through um, resolution.
2: Um, and Scott. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks, uh, Leah. We uh, we miss you, but we enjoy working with you on the other side. <laughs> um, um, Matt, I've been practicing for, well, I don't even want to say how many years, um, but <laughs> for, for quite a while. And my practice um, focuses really uh, almost exclusively on government enforcement and uh, self-disclosures you know, in advance of that, uh, and we've seen in many instances, as I'm sure you're well aware, that self-disclosure can be a very proactive compliance risk mitigation strategy, particularly if something could later escalate uh, into a government investigation. But uh, work on really both sides of that. Um, we tried to to do a rough count as to how many of these that that I've been involved in, and I think I think we're up uh, over 120 of them um, uh, regarding both the uh, OIG and CMS and on occasion we've e- even gone directly uh, to the uh, Department of Justice. And as Lay indicated, we're there's also kind of the voluntary refund aspect of this, which I don't know if we want to you know, use our discussion to address that type of self-reporting strategy, but obviously, you know, um, that's within the continuum as well. But each one of these has its own story. And and as Leah alluded to, I mean, they have to be fully investigated, the underlying conduct that's in question has to be remediated. Uh, and then the idea obviously is to package it all up uh, with reassurances to the government that, you know, the conduct in question will not recur. So um, it becomes a very important strategy, obviously, particularly with organizations that have effective compliance programs in place.
0: I, um, I trust you have some interesting anecdotes from those experiences.
2: Like I said, each one um, is its <laughs> own story, um, the, a lot of those are to the OIG and I, I will say that we do consider it a privilege working with the OIG staff attorneys on those. We have developed, uh, you know, some rapport, know some of those folks. So I, I think in some cases we've had, uh, a couple dozen self-disclosures with the same staff attorney. So through, through the, the period of time, you know, that we're talking about it, it tends to make the process more predictable. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, there's some familiarity there too, that, that, uh, can help with the process. Absolutely. And that gives, gives credibility to
0: the work that you're doing for your clients as well, which is, which is a, you know, a tremendous benefit. I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the strategy, here, right. I mean, I think you, you you said it, Scott, you know, that sometimes these it, it can be a strategic move to kind of, you know, maybe fend off an enforcement action in the fu- in the future. What's sort of generally, you know, Leah or Scott, the strategy that goes into um, one of these self disclosures?
1: Um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, depending on the type of issue the Depending on the type of potential issues involved will sometimes drive the approach, right? I mean, if you have just a, you know, true technical stark violation, your only option for that is a CMS self-disclosure. Um, well, I, I should caveat that with, unless your referrals are so low that you wanna go the voluntary refund route. But um, if you if you have a, a high volume of referrals due to a problematic um, stark arrangement, that's a, a CMS disclosure approach. Um, there might be approaches with the OIG um, if you have potential fair market value concerns, you know, combined with with a start concern. And so I think you look at, you know, what are the various different options? What are the referrals you're talking about? Um, you know, are we aware of any potential whistleblowers or any potential government action or Um, that they're looking at any particular issues. And as Scott mentioned, each of the approaches has, you know, their own pros and cons of what you get with that, what releases you might have, what sort of publicity or announcement there might be um, through the different approaches, what the releases would cover And so I think you have to really think about all of those things um, based on the specific facts and circumstances of what you have to really advise the client on what the best approach is um, in that situation. You know, if you have a situation where it might, you know, in normal circumstances, you might consider kind of a a softer approach, but you have concerns of, 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 you know, strong concerns about a whistleblower, you might instead decide, decide to go straight to the DOJ or you know, take a different approach um, given whatever the facts and circumstances are at that time.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good description, Matt. And it, it's really kind of a risk assessment, I think in, in terms of what, what type of um, behavior or overpayment are you talking about? And do you really want to come out of the process with some kind of release um, the The timing of resolution can also come into play because some of those procedures are a lot more timely than others. And then I think the other the other element too, from a from a timing standpoint, is if you know if you've identified the overpayment, you probably want to um, implement your self-reporting strategy within 60 days after that, based on the um, overpayment refund rule. Uh, regardless of of whatever uh, particular self disclosure uh, self disclosure procedure you use, so it, it really is defined by the risk, I think, and and um, the feeling that the organization has that it could escalate.
0: So, uh, tell me a little bit about um, uh, you know sort of the to the typical outcome or the typical you know, end result for a self-disclosure? Now, and and you've already said, you know, each one is its own story. So maybe there isn't a typical outcome. Uh, but, you know, what's sort of the, you know, maybe a better better way to phrase it is what's sort of a spectrum of outcomes that you could anticipate from a self-disclosure? And 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 maybe we think about that agency by agency, you know, CMS, OIG, and, and DOJ. Sure.
2: Lee, you want me to start with OIG? And you can take sure. CMS.
1: Oh, well. <laughs> oh, I don't know that I'll have much to say because I don't know yeah. that we have much specificity there. <laughs> yeah. Sure, um, go ahead. You get to cover mm-hmm. DOJ though.
2: Okay, that's fine. Um, yeah, I think with DOIG, Matt, it's actually a very predictable process. Um, you can see right in the OIG self-disclosure protocol, for example, um, there's reference to... Uh, most of those self-disclosures will be resolved within 12 months. Uh, there's actually reference to the standard multiplier that's a pop, you know applied to the damage total, uh, and you know we have actually seen, particularly during the public health emergency, that uh, those cases flow through the process actually much more quickly than 12 months. Um, in, in fact, we've seen some here. While the COVID period has been in place, where the OIG has basically given self disclosing providers the option of either to put the self disclosure on pause or to continue. And for those that where the self disclosing provider has opted to continue with the self disclosure, we've actually had some uh, conclude within. Uh, well within six months after submission. So, you know, the end result is a uh, settlement with the OIG. It's the standard self-disclosure template with a release under the civil monetary penalties law uh, and a requirement that, you know, the damages be wired within X number of days to the OIG. Uh, The other part of it that, that, people need to appreciate too, is the OIG do post uh, a summary, you know, the self-disclosure cases that have settled on their uh, website um, after resolution of the case. So that, that's kind of the way it looks, you know, the cases are assigned to individual staff attorneys to, to review the submissions and ask any follow-up questions that, you know, they think are necessary. But that's kind of uh, the way it would typically flow, um, you know, upon submission.
0: It sounds as if the process is, you know, very much, you know, a well-paved path, so to speak, and you're not going to expect necessarily much contention or conflict in the process.
2: Yeah, it. it um... You know, the the ideal scenario would be that the OIG essentially accepts the self-disclosing provider's portrayal of the damages, and then typically uh, the penalty would be 1.5 times that amount. That is really the best case scenario in that situation. Um, sometimes, though, you know, there are questions about how the damages were calculated, the methodology that's used, sometimes additional information is requested. But overall, yes, I think that's a, that's a correct um, characterization of it. It is a fairly um, well-identified kind of systematic process to, you know, put those compliance risks to bed.
1: I would just add to that, though, that I think a key component of ensuring it goes that way is doing a thorough investigation, making sure the issue is correctly remediated and fully corrected before you disclose, and really being forthcoming and outlining, you know what the issue was, how it occurred, what you've done to fix it, um, and being forthcoming with the information because certainly, in my years of private practice, we did have situations where, you know, there might've been a client who had taken a a different approach um, with kind of their initial approach to OIG, kind of saying, I'm not sure, we're not sure that this is really a problem or not. And I think, you know, the OIG is going to react more favorably, have less questions, and the process will be much smoother if you have a very well-prepared self- disclosure and you're being forthright of the information. If you're kind of trying to be cute with the facts, one, your release is only as good as the details you provide, right? So if you're not Mm -hmm. describing everything and if you had great facts, you wouldn't be in a self-disclosure situation to begin with. Um, but, but I think that is critical to ensuring that smooth process and, um, You know, showing the OIG that you really take it seriously that you have an effective program and not trying to, you know, kind of hem and haw about really what occurred. Um, I think they would, would probably not look at that as favorably and might be a little bit more um, hesitant or ask more questions and um, it might not be as smooth of a process if you're taking that approach.
0: So it sounds like there's kind of a, a you know, a, an important recipe of ingredients here, you know, in addition to, you know, ensuring good relationships uh, with OIG, with the agency, so that, you know, there's credibility. Uh, there's also full transparency. If you decide to go down this road, you need to be ready to, to show kind of everything, right? And that means being prepared in advance.
2: Yeah, the, I, I think the the best preparation Matt is um, basically a thorough and probing internal investigation to to essentially show the government there really isn't anything else for them to do. Um, And as Alay alluded to, you know, that steps have already been taken to correct the problem. So essentially it's done. You know, it's a thing of the past. Uh, The provider identified it and corrected it. On its own, the provider obviously took it very seriously, based on the extent of the investigation and the and the self-disclosure itself. Carefully, you know, determined what the damages were, um, and then basically, you know, was they were fully transparent um, and provided any in, information that the OIG needed. I mean, that those are all signs, I think, typically where the government would conclude that it doesn't really have to do anything else um to get it to resolution
0: you know it's interesting i'm thinking right now just as a compliance officer myself you know i often think the best you know prevent prevention is you know being able to demonstrate that you know we're able to regulate ourselves and we have you know good clear clean controls and we enforce those controls and we enforce them you know authentically and it sounds like this is just another extension of that you know saying to the government um, we are able to, you know, regulate ourselves. In fact, we found this, you know, error or issue, and 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 here's the information. How does it work on the CMS side? It sounds like it might be a little bit different uh, when it comes to <laughs> CMS. Uh,
1: yes, I would say that the the approach is, is slightly different based on the experiences that that we've had. Um, so the. CMS does have a protocol just like the OIG does that outlines kind of what is required as part of the disclosure. And I think to the point of our discussion about, you know, doing a thorough investigation and being forthright in your disclosure, I think those are all relevant on the CMS side as well. I think that the primary difference is the predictability of, um, of how long it will take and any sort of damages calculation. Um, So CMS does not, unlike the OIG, they don't set forth a specific timeline um, for for resolution. And for anyone that has gone through a CMS self-disclosure, as they are likely aware at this point, um, CMS has a significant backlog of self-disclosures. So we're seeing You know, many years essentially from the time a CMS disclosure is submitted to where you might might hear from CMS as to that. So, whereas the OIG kind of commits to having that resolved within 12 months, you know, give or take, once it's accepted into the protocol, um, you know, there's there's many CMS disclosures that have been kind of been pending for a number of years. The the challenge with that too is that you know sometimes CMS laws have changed over the past number of years. So if you have a disclosure that was submitted in 2014, some of those laws have changed since then. Um, CMS does similar to OIG sometimes come back with questions, um, and then they don't really have an established settlement um, you know approach to determining a settlement amount. So you can't really anticipate in advance what the settlement amount will be the same way you can with the OIG who has a standard 1.5 multiplier and in some sense that makes sense because um, from a CMS perspective again those are technical stark violations and so while the referrals may from a a true legal perspective be prohibited if you have a, a problematic physician arrangement that doesn't meet a stark exception you don't have a fair market value concern you know it might be a late signature the contract was never signed but you were still paying fair market value and so it it does not appear based on you know the settlements that have been resolved over time and even the kind of the summaries and statistics on cms's website that the settlement amounts are tied to referral dollars because if you think about you know you have a a technical violation related to a a contract with a neurosurgery group. Well, your referral dollars could be extremely high. And if the settlement was based on that, nobody would wanna use that disclosure approach. Um, So, but there's really no way to foresee or anticipate what the actual settlement amount will be because CMS doesn't really give information on how they calculate or what they do to come up with a proposed settlement approach. Um, Similar, though, there's there's a settlement agreement, um, you know, that that would be signed, they, they can ask follow up questions. Um, And then um, on the OIG side, they do a small, you know, small summary description on the OIG website on the CMS side, I think it's just the the general statistics overall, there's not any, um, you know, specific announcement related to any one self disclosure or, or settlement.
0: It almost seems to me as if um, I don't want to say that the, the processes are sort of opposing in nature, but, you know, there's something about the OIG process that, you know, speaks to uniformity, you know, consistency, predictability, transparency, and on the CMS side, what it sounds like is it's, you know, a little bit more of a black box, so to speak, and, you know, my reaction is, you know, maybe that would discourage. Providers from self-disclosing under Stark or to CMS, and I, I don't know if, Scott if you have any thoughts on that. Whether that goes into the client's calculus, but um, it it seems to be it seems to me it's almost like a a, a disincentive to uh, to disclose to to CMS.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting point, Matt. Um, you know, as an example. And, and I, I want to say too, I you know I assume CMS is doing everything they can to try to move through the queue that yep. um, Leah described, and and I'm sure there's you know there's challenges um, with resources because I think providers you know with technical Stark violations, unfortunately you know the recent rules are helpful, but you know there really isn't an option other than to self-report, and as Leah indicated, a Stark only. Um, violation has to go through the CMS process. But, you know, in reality, for someone who's looking for resolution of a self-disclosure, I mean, you were asking earlier about anecdotes. Um, We have one that was pending with CMS for eight years with really no um, follow-up since the submission that we just recently, you know, received some uh, questions about. And, you know, that's a tremendous span of time to try to gather information at this point. And it's really hard, you know, um, to, and and I think CMS understands that, um, but it would be great if, if some of those pending CMS self-disclosures could start moving through the process because it, you know, the access to information, the turnover and the staff involved, and just the desire to kind of get those off the books. You're, you're absolutely right in that regard, I think the two uh, processes are completely different.
1: I would say though, um, kind of Matt, to your question of, is it kind of a disincentive? And I, I really don't think it is because If you have a strong, effective compliance program, I mean, the alternative is that you have a a technical Stark violation and you have prohibited referrals and absent, you know, a a Stark self-disclosure, you know, there is the reverse False Claims Act. You now have knowledge, you have those referrals, you have a repayment obligation for those referrals, and the CMS disclosure process does you know, kind of toll all of that. Once you submit the disclosure, you you don't have to refund those referrals. It kind of pauses that sixty day refund obligation. And while it's it can be frustrating to have to wait so long, it is generally and from what we've seen with settlements and in private practice as well, is that they're they're much more reasonable than having to refund all the referrals. So I think that. You know, should still be an incentive to make sure that you're correcting the issue and, and taking the steps and, and considering that as a valid um, and desirable you know option.
0: So in other words, it may not be a disincentive. The process may be tough but at the end of the day it's you know probably better to go through the process than to you know kind of take your chances. Which, you know, obviously we wouldn't advise our clients to do, but um, uh, tell me about the DOJ process.
2: Uh, that process, I, I think, Matt, is, is very specific to each local office of the AUSA. Um, some providers are, you know, have worked with uh, the local office for years and years, and it, there's very little turnover, there's, you know, healthcare expertise. And that can be a preferred option, um, but it, it's very, I think, local office specific. And it's a little bit um, undefined too, in terms of, you know, the timing, the, the damage amount, um, standard procedure. That protocol is really much more recent. Um, it used to be, you know, without um, specific guidance to the provider community. And so I, I think it's it's a little bit more individualized than perhaps the other.
0: And when would you consider a disclosure to uh, DOJ in connection with a disclosure to OIG and or CMS?
2: Yeah, I, I think it, you know, again, if there's a if there's a strong relationship that you know was built based on past activity or or prior case where there's kind of, it's an known quantity and you want to kind of go back there. Maybe, maybe it's related to a matter that you had with that office in the past. Um, I think it, it, we've seen it where there's past um, um, dealings with, with the office that gives the provider comfort that they will be essentially treated the same way um, going forward. So it, again, it, it has a lot to do, I think, with who the individual players might be, uh, both on the provider side and, and then you know with the local office of the AUSA. The other, the other thing I think I would add there too, Matt, that some folks are, are very um, interested in obtaining an actual FCA release. And you won't get that directly from the OIG, for example, you'll get a a civil monetary penalties law release. If you want an actual release from the False Claims Act, you know, you're particularly concerned about a relator, for example, Um, the DOJ has to be involved with that. And so I think there are cases where folks are very um, focused on that being the final objective. And that really then would presumably start with the, you know, the local office of the AUSA. How often do you
0: see that, that DOJ will, you know, issue a, a False Claims Act waiver and that, that's, that's self-disclosure?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, you, you know, it's the, it's the end result of a, for example, an investigation, a self-disclosure, you know, False Claims Act investigation. It, it could be the end result also of a self-disclosure to the, Uh, DOJ directly and then on occasion doesn't happen very often but um, the OIG will alert the local office of the USA that a self-disclosure has been submitted for a provider in that district and we have had very few but you know there were some in the past where the the DOJ actually opted to get involved in the OIG self-disclosure and then The DOJ drove the case, the local office of the AUSA drove the case from there and the end result ended up being a false claims release. So that can sometimes happen. I think the OIG is a courtesy, uh, alerts the local office that a self-disclosure has been filed and then uh, the AUSA can determine whether or not they want to get involved. Doesn't, again, very rare in our experience, but it, it has happened.
0: Um, anything else you want to share about self-disclosures? I mean, any sort of, you know, key challenges that providers might face, uh, issues or process concerns that a provider might face when 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 uh, issuing a self-disclosure?
1: Um, so I can start with that. I think it, it goes back to the complete and thorough investigation Um definitely have had situations during my practice where the the client was really anxious to, to, to self disclose, right? They, they know there's an issue, they have concerns, maybe there's chatter among staff or, or something about an issue that's going on. And so they really want to address it. And they really like, okay, let's disclose, let's disclose. And I think sometimes, um, you know, as counsel for for a client, you have to kind of get them to pause. We have to think through the actual issues and make sure that we're addressing kind of every element and every piece that might be problematic, making sure we have a a corrective action process that actually works. Um, I think that's key because you don't wanna be in a situation where you kind of rush to disclose, um, but the issue isn't really fixed. Um, Or you don't really understand what led to the issue or all of the different facts about the issue. Um, I think that can be really problematic, particularly if, you know, the OIG asks follow-up questions. You don't want to be in a position where you have to go back and say, well, we said this in the disclosure, but now that we looked at it more, you know, something is different about that. Um, I think, too, in, in that same vein is the data that you are, are looking at. It's really important to make sure you contemplate all sources. I mean, OIG disclosures can be used for, you know, stark and anti-kickback concerns, but they can it can also be used for billing and coding issues mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, false claims that kind of overpayment concerns depending on those issues. And it's really important to make sure you've done, particularly with a billing coding review, you've done, an an appropriate investigation, a review, you have uh, an appropriate method for, you know, if you're extrapolating kind of a result, that you have all of the data and the universe of claims that are actually impacted. Um, You know, we've had situations historically, um, when I was in private practice, where the DO, or excuse me, the OIG came back and said, this data doesn't, we look like we have more claims than what you have, And it turned out that the client had inadvertently failed to pull data from an archived system. And so they ended up missing claims. So I think really kind of slowing down and thinking about the process and making sure you have everything, because that all goes to credibility, right? And so um, to have the best result and to earn that trust and to build those relationships you know, I've worked with Scott a long time, and I think he has done a great job of building that rapport. And it's because with the self disclosures, they're very thorough, they're very detailed. It's, you know, there's a comfort level knowing that the process has that has occurred is going to be a strong, valid process. Um, And I think sometimes just trying to realize that it's it's better to take a little bit more time and actually do a thorough investigation than kind of rush to it and miss something um is going to be a better result in the long run
2: yeah i guess matt and, and thank you for that leah i, I would add two in terms of the timing it's kind of a uh delicate balance because on the one hand as leah indicated you want to make sure your your investigation. Um, is in depth and, and covers the basis because really your self-disclosure is only as good as the internal investigation, the data that you use. On the other hand, you know, sometimes there's a concern that, that somebody is going to blow the whistle. Um, and we've literally had, you know, we've had providers working on self-disclosures where and they were very close to submitting when they get a CID from the DOJ. So, it's a delicate balance um, to, to make sure you know you're you're throwing probing to to uncover everything, as opposed to you know sometimes not allowing the issue to get outside the organization. Um, the other thing too, I think we already alluded to this. Once it's in you know, you really don't have the option of like saying, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't an issue or, um, you know, maybe it's not that bad or maybe we overstated the damages. It, you know, that, that just goes to what Leah was saying, credibility mm-hmm. and that's not received well, you know? Um, so you, 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 you basically have to be all in and then, um, you know, be as responsive as you can once the you know the questions start coming in to 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 make sure you answer the agency question.
0: And I, I so appreciate that. I appreciate the um, the concept of the fine balance too. It's you know a race to the finish line, but before you get to that finish line, you better make sure what it is you're delivering is like you said, yeah. and thorough, and you know well conducted, and you need to have a good understanding of the facts. We want to thank Leah Olson of Ascension and Scott uh, Table of Hall Render for joining us today and for sharing their experience and their expertise. We also want to send a huge thank you to our podcast sponsor, the BRG Group, and finally to you, our listeners, and we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.